Yo, welcome back to the Lars Resort. Still a podcast with me, Lars Sievertson, still brought to you by Betson. It is Monday, and we've had one of these funky sort of reduced schedule Premier League weekends when there are some games, but not all the games, because the Premier League have, uh, have, have made sort of their compromised version of like kind of let's have a winter break, but let's make sure there's still content. Uh, by sort of staggering the games in a way that is kind of gives everyone some 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 time off, but we had some the games we had this weekend were were kind of interesting. There was some stuff. There was some fun games. There was some stuff going on. And um, that Newcastle City, I was very intrigued to watch Newcastle City, right? Because everything that's gone on with Newcastle this winter, City are are they coming back? Are they now going to turn into the Death Star and just kind of steamroll everyone? Very intrigued to watch this. And the first half, wow. Newcastle, kind of back, question mark? Um, They seem to be. I mean, that first half performance, obviously City had more possession, created a lot of chances or some chances. City tend to do that. But I just thought the energy and intensity and aggression to Newcastle, this looked so much more like a good Newcastle that we've seen previously under Eddie Howe. Maybe that week of of rest, uh, the the schedule is lightening up a little bit now. Maybe that will help them sort of get back to, to where they were scored two sort of uh, well they conceded a slightly was it not maybe not fully against the run of play because city had a lot of possession but you did feel that city were in trouble here that they were vulnerable and then they scored the first goal uh, and then newcastle responded and they responded by two sort of goals in quick succession which is something we see from city occasionally that uh, when they kind of lose control of something when things go against them it, it does kind of escalate sometimes and we've seen that um like some big examples, uh, the Champions League defeat to Real Madrid back in 2022. They conceded three goals in extra time, basically, from the 90th to the 95th minute. And they went out to Lyon in 2020. Uh, Lyon scored in the 79th and 87th minutes. That was also a quick sort of one-two. And against Tottenham in 2019 when they went out. I mean, the damage in that game was done when Son scored in the 7th and the 10th minute. Um, so, you see, me, me, I don't, just to reassure you, I didn't remember that. Uh, <laughs> offhand, I have taken notes the minutes of which the goals came in. I had to look it up. But, like, the point is, we, we've seen this with City. They are a little bit susceptible under Guardiola to these sort of mini collapses. And, and, and one theory about that is because it's such a system-orientated team. Uh, because uh, Guardiola likes uh, players who are very loyal to the plan uh, that they and that, which they have to be for his sort of tactical intricate stuff to work. Maybe sometimes you don't have personalities there who can just kind of stand up and just stop it when things are going wrong. Remember when um, one of the things from Ibrahimovic Zlatan's autobiography uh, is that he didn't like it at Barcelona because he felt that they were a team of schoolboys. And, 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 but Guardiola likes that in a player. For, for him to implement these sort of complex tactical things, like I said, they need a, he needs a squad of sort of attentive, obedient, loyal guys. And, and you can't really question the results, you know? you know. Count the trophies, count the medals, count the records. But there are also these little moments when things go against them and that you feel maybe you need one or... I mean, it would be good if they had one or two of these sort of big characters out there who can just kind of take charge of the situation. Whether that is you commit a really bad foul, you start a fight, you know, you, you time waste, or even just have the defense drop off 10 yards for a few minutes and just ride the storm and just keep it simple for a little bit. 
there are situations where you kind of need to do one of those things to put the brakes on. And I know what we're doing is we're picking holes in an incredibly successful team and manager who ended up winning the game, by the way. But it is something that we see that they lack. I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that there could be a link between that and the fact that Guardiola almost seems to discourage autonomy in his players. You know, he likes the schoolboys. But of course, in the second half, what they did not lack was Kevin De Bruyne. Who, who has been to the same hairdresser as Jack Grealish. Uh, we've seen this as he's been making his return in the last few weeks. Uh, and um, he, he came on. And listen, sometimes football can be like a really random and complex and chaotic sport. And just trying to connect the dots and, and shape a kind of narrative and make sense of what you're seeing can, can be difficult. Sometimes it's really, really simple. Like, obviously, City have mixed Kevin De Bruyne because he's amazing, right? Uh, but I've always kind of said and I've said a few times because it relates specifically to Erling Haaland as well that I think they've missed him because he has a sort of directness to him sometimes and and he does actually have the authority and and personality to do stuff that's maybe not 100% the game plan which, which I feel very few City players do so he comes on and he basically wins them the game how does he do that well the first goal is a shot from outside the box uh, where he picked up the ball in the sort of half space on the right-hand side and also in the space between midfield and attack. And instead of trying to play through Alvarez or instead of trying to use one of the wide players who are kind of making runs into space, De Bruyne just goes, I got this, and just runs and scores uh, because that's something he, he does. He doesn't always follow the script. And, uh, and the Oscar Bob goal... Obviously, for me, that's exciting because it's Oscar Bob. But the pass, man, the, the, the pass is where it's at. The pass is just genius. And I don't think many other City players will attempt that pass because he just, Deronio just has the ball in the middle of the park. And we know normally what City are supposed to do. They do their usual sort of pass and move through the lines thing and try to eventually get to the byline and play the cutback and they, they do the thing. But De Bruyne is like, well, no. I can see that Oscar Bob has made a little run there. He's going to have some space if I time this right. So I'm just going to play this ball over the top. You know, the striker is moving. I'm a midfielder with some vision and a good uh, passing foot. A good, well, a very good, a slightly above average foot for passes. Uh, we, we say Kevin De Bruyne has. So I'm, I can see the striker is running. I'm just going to feed him. So he plays this sort of over the top ball. And it just takes just otherworldly precision and timing to get it right. It is a very high-risk thing. Most of the times, most players attempt this. They will lose the ball, which is why I suspect Guardiola doesn't really, doesn't really want the players to, to do it because he wants them to keep the ball and try to create clearer openings. But De Bruyne has the authority to try something like that because you know what? He's Kevin De Bruyne. And then, of course, he has the skill and the vision to, to, to pull it off. And I don't think it couldn't be more clearly like illustrated why they've missed him like of course they've missed him they he comes on and has a goal and an assist you know you always miss a guy who can do that but it was just right there that ability to and, and authority and directness to actually just know you know what game plan is great and passing patterns is all well and good but i'm just gonna thump uh, just gonna loft it over the top here onto the striker who's on the move because that is what i do and, and that just little bit of directness in the midst of all this uh guardiola goodness i think just adds so much to, to manchester city it makes a huge huge difference difference uh, to them and we saw exactly exactly the thing that they've been missing as for Newcastle so I would maintain again as I saw earlier in the first half we saw we saw good Newcastle we saw them starting to get back to, to where they want to be as a team and do the things that they they can do well and um, if you just compare the first half performance against City against what it looked like against Nottingham Forest right it feels like two very different teams to me and the schedule has lightened up a bit that helps them they could not maintain it for 90 minutes. 
uh, and they got De bruyne I mean, that's stuff that can happen. Uh, but I think this is an excellent stat flagged up by the equally excellent Richard Jolly. Uh, I, have to, I have to credit him, but he, he pointed out that in the first 70 minutes of games this season, Newcastle's goal difference is plus 13, whereas in just the last 20 minutes of games, their goal difference is minus 4. All right, that is a pretty big swing. First 70 plus 13, last 20 minus 4. So clearly going the distance is a problem for Newcastle, has been a problem for Newcastle, but that makes perfect sense in light of everything we've been talking about for a few months now, really, it feels like, about fatigue, about injuries. I think it's not unreasonable to suggest that that should get better in the coming weeks and months. They're out of Europe. Uh, people will hopefully for them be getting fit again. Uh, we have five subs now. So, like, if you have your good players on the bench, you can change, like, literally half your outfield team. Uh, and, and how I'm sure we'll, we'll do this. It's just that throughout the winter, he's, he's not really had the strength and depth very often. They're 10th, which obviously looks bad. It's not where they were hoping to be. But they are just, what, like five points off of six, I think it is. Uh, which means they're one, and we think fifth will be a Champions League spot this season. So they're not that far behind in that sense. Having said that, that would be relying on the remaining English teams in the Champions League to do well. Uh, it would be funny. It would be hard not to find it slightly amusing if Newcastle finished fifth and fifth does not get you a Champions League spot because Newcastle went out. <laughs> uh, specifically, like, they went out-out. They, they could have, they were very close to getting a Europa League spot. Instead, they, they messed that up and, and, and went completely out. And that Europa League may be not so fun, uh, but it would have been good for the coefficient if another English club had, like, a deep run in there. I reckon City will probably get, like, to the Champions League final or something, and Liverpool will probably win the Europa League. So I, I, I suspect the coefficient will be fine. Uh, but that is a funny scenario, uh, Newcastle finishing fifth and not getting Champions League, in part because they themselves got knocked out. That would be slightly amusing, one has to say. Uh, what else happened the weekend? United-Tottenham. Fun game. Yes, lively, as expected. Um, not a great week overall for the betting column, but I have to say, both teams to score and over two and a half goals in this game was never in doubt. That was that was We got that one before halftime. And I don't think it's unfair to suggest... That Tottenham were a little bit better overall. I thought they played quite a lot better. Um, but what I thought was interesting, again, was that there's such a dichotomy here between the situations these clubs are in, the situations these two managers are in, and how they've approached the situation. I think you got to remember, Postacoglu was dealt a pretty difficult hand when he took over at Tottenham. They had a terrible season last term. Their sort of talismanic forward, uh, one of the best players in the club's history, had just left. Uh, there was chaos upstairs because the former sporting director had been banned. Uh, like the fan base was... was the, the, the natives were restless. And and you have a bunch of players who just... A lot of them just kind of looked sad and not very good last season. Like It's not a great hand to, to, to pick up. Uh, but one of the things Postacoglu has done and clearly done, is to be totally dogmatic about the style of play. Even in situations, and, and one in particular, when it looked a bit ludicrous, he's like, he's stuck to it. This is how we play, this is what we do. And in the face of, like, mounting injuries and suspensions and everything, he's, he's kind of stuck with it. He's been very clear. This is how we want to play. I believe in this. This is what we're trying to develop. And if we have some setbacks early on, that's okay, because that's all part of the journey. But we believe that what we're doing is working and is going to work, so we're going to keep doing it. Eric Ten Hag, of course took a very different approach to this uh, in his first season at United. He started uh, wanting to implement sort of his uh, principles, 
uh, from his sort of Dutch background and you were play out from the back and all that. And then they got thumped by Brighton and Brentford and they were like, okay, we probably can't do that. <laughs> he sort of uh, changed a course. And that was, I, I mean, I, I think that was the right thing to do. I don't think he would have lasted the first six months if he had insisted on like trying to play out from the back with David De Gea in goal and playing a high line and a high press with Ronaldo up front. Like, you just can't do that. It, it won't work. It's not possible. Um, so he would have been gone before Christmas. So he had to make those changes. We've talked about this a lot. He had to compromise, change his approach. But I wrote something a little bit a while back for, for Betson about how I just kind of felt he's kind of stuck in that mode, isn't he? It's like he went, okay, we're not going to do the thing I came in and wanted to do. we got to be pragmatic so I don't get fired. And then they've stuck there. Like they, It's just like, let's get through next weekend. Let's set the team up in a way so we don't get killed and hope that we have enough moments of individual quality to kind of see us through. There was a discussion on Sky Sports after the game. I thought it was kind of interesting. The presenter asked about this, the difference between like having moments and a team having a defined style of play. And I thought Roy Keane's answer was really interesting to me because Keane said... Uh, about United, where this team is at the moment, I can't do the accent, I mean, he'd come to my house and kill me, uh, where this team is at the moment for United is just about trying to get a couple of results together, get some momentum back in the season, so I wouldn't be sitting here and being overly critical of United. I wasn't expecting them to control the game. I thought Spurs would have a go, Spurs are in a good place. Spurs are in a good place. I mean, the place Spurs are in, again, is that they're halfway through their first season with a new manager who has radically changed the way they play. Uh, the player who was carrying the team for several years left. Uh, the captain and now most important attacking player isn't there. Uh, they're without like four or five first team starters for this game. But Postacoglu hasn't changed his approach uh, in, in spite of those things. Uh, but apparently this is a team that, according to Roy Keane, United cannot be expected to even try to play their game and try to, you know, be dominant at home against. Like, this seems kind of bad for United, if this is where we're at, right? Uh, for Ten Hag's first six months, that's fine. The team was a mess. He couldn't change everything at the same time. He had to figure this stuff up. And I think it was kind of fine in the second half of last season as well. Because we were dealing... They were... Because they were dealing with stuff that, like, not having a proper striker, like you had Valt Weghorst up there, you had the Mason Greenwood nonsense rumbling along. It was just kind of David De Gea was still in goal. Like, things were still, like, fraught and difficult. And just, again, getting through that, getting into the Champions League, job well done. But he's been in the job for a year and a half now. Since he took over, United has spent over $400 million on like 10 new first-team players, most of whom have been guys who are Dutch, who Ten Hag has worked with before, or who he shares an agent with, right? He's clearly had huge influence over the incomings, and we actually know this. He apparently has a veto uh, on uh, incoming transfers in his contract. If he doesn't like them, they, they don't get signed. I, I just I don't think we should still be in firefighting mode here. Uh, and, and the problem with staying in this sort of pragmatic firefighting mode for this long, it's going to be pretty hard to get out of it. Like a, a manager's authority, I think, can be a very fragile thing. Uh, when a new manager comes in, he's like, he's the new guy. He has all the new ideas. He's done well somewhere else. Ideally, there's kind of a hype about him in the press and all this. And the manager has all these things going for him, and he has to take all of that and use it to make the players believe in him and believe that you are the guy with the ideas and all the good answers. And if they do what you say, you'll be successful. In the case of Ten Hag, he's come in, his ideas did not work. <laughs> they got thumped by Brighton and Brentford. He had to change, he had to adapt. And again, I'm not saying that was wrong. He had to do it. He had to buy himself time. But when you've put your own principles and ideas like aside for that long for like we're 18 months in now we're still not seeing any of it 
I don't know if he can just switch it back on again. Now, I know it's not that black and white. Like, I'm sure he does work on the training ground according to what he thinks the team needs, and, and he knows a lot about this. But I, I think what Gary Neville was talking about after the game, on again, on TV in England, and, and not for the first time, th- there doesn't seem to be any sort of pattern to what United are doing. And a team going through a difficult time, you want there to be like a tactical backbone to what you're doing. There, there should be things that you work on in training that you fall back on. Uh, and for years and years, it's felt like United haven't really had that. And that's just not me sort of backseat tacticking from my sofa. You guys know I, I prefer to avoid that. But like, Gary Neville's played a bit and he's coached a bit and he's a good analyst. And he, he points out this one very simple thing. When a United player passes to another, right? you can see that the player receiving the ball has to then stop, look up, look around. Okay, what do we do next? There's no mechanisms there. There's no, uh, I believe, automatisms is the coaching jargon for it. There's none of that. And you, you see that all the time in good teams teams and well-coached teams there's always like these little automatic moves they can do and that they look for and with with Spurs we saw it almost from day one under Ange I mean the performances were perfect and the tactics are high risk and you've missed some important players throughout this but but it was immediately clear that the players now knew what they were supposed to be doing um I, I think it's it's completely fair to say about United that because of injuries and the stuff, you have like a midfield where you have like a small child in Kobe Maynou playing, who looks really good, by the way, and, and next to old man Eriksson, and you've got Bruno Fernandes just running around. Like, it, it's not an ideal midfield, right? But you're also not playing against Pep's Barcelona here. Like, this is Skip and Heiberg and like Bentancur, who hasn't played for ages. Not exactly Xavi and Iniesta and Busquets you're up against and United were just not able to grab a hold of the game I didn't think and and keep relying on counterattacks and and they just seem to be stuck in this sort of strange survival mode just let's just set it up in a way that might get us through the next weekend uh, nothing seems to be developing and and, and Tagi's even said publicly like making United play like his Ajax team is impossible now Okay, but a lot of people, myself included, would have said that making Tottenham go from what they were at the end of last season to playing like they do now, just stylistically, in a few months, that that would be impossible. But here we are. Turns out it can be done. And and the hope, I guess the hope is if you're a United fan, and I hear this a lot, like, like now, so Jim Radcliffe and the bicycle guy are coming in. Everything will now become infinitely better. And the real Ericton Hag can please stand up. But I'm just not sure if that's possible. Because when you're a new manager, again, you come in, you have wind in your sails, you've got all these fresh ideas, you get the players to buy into that, into what you're doing, and you build from there. But in this case, the manager's been there for 18 months, and and he's already kind of set aside his, his new ideas. And I think it's very unlikely that he'll get the same response for the players if he suddenly changes now. Like, if he suddenly turns up for training tomorrow with his coaches and goes, well, we're going to play like this, because this is the best way to do it, I think a fair few of them will think, what? Like, if, if this is the best way to do it, why was it not the best way to do it last month? It seems weird. So I don't know if you can just kind of restart it suddenly. Uh, maybe this summer, maybe United kind of muddle through the season, get enough positive results, try to add certain things to the work they're doing, and, and at least don't go into like a massive death spiral. Maybe they sign a few more players in the summer. Maybe Ten Hag turns up in preseason and goes, all right, enough of that. This is what we're doing. We're doing different things. Maybe that can work. I, I think it's much more likely that United will just kind of continue to muddle through, uh, that we'll get to the end of the season, and the Ineos lads will go, yeah, thanks, but no thanks, Eric. You know, we're going to have to start afresh here. And I've said before, I have a lot of sympathy for Ten Hag because there's always stuff in the way. During his time at United, there's always something going on, and I would have really liked to see 
at some point him to have a chance to work at something that resembles his best 11 for a couple of months just to see what that looks like but it's just very hard to reboot a managerial reign that's kind of stalled and is plodding along and i don't know it, it would at least require exceptional charisma and man management from ten Hag to just kind of turn around and say oh this is what we're doing i now have all of these answers i'm just not really convinced by him on that particular area either which does it does lead us neatly to some transfer stuff i i feel you know a couple of outgoings in the premier league this time with with jaden sancho going back to dortmund uh, interesting for me because it follows on uh, from last episode's theme of my interest in nay my passion for these sort of fixer uppers um Jaden Sancho, definitely footballing home improvement show uh, candidate, a uh, player who has completely lost his way. Um, and we've talked about that saga a lot on the pods. I feel like there's no need to recap everything. I would maintain that I I think the manner of his exile at United was strange. You know, Eric Ten Hag called him out in a very public way. Sancho replied in a very public way. Uh, Ten Hag did not like that. And apparently that is a good enough reason to, to sideline and, I guess, temporary scrap an 80 million euro asset, um, I guess. And this whole business about him like being made to eat uh, on his own, like he can't eat in the canteen until he apologizes. Like, what are we doing here? This is really sort of preschool stuff. And I, I wonder if that was the best way of solving that particular conflict uh, from the point of view of Ten Hag. But of course, it is possible that there are things uh, that we don't know. or it's, not, it's very probable. I can guarantee you that there are things we don't know. There always is. And we have, of course, inevitably had reports about how Sancho's uh, discipline has been a problem for a while, which I'm sure is true. I have no reason to doubt it, but it does beg the question of why Dortmund were able to manage him and get great performances out of him and United were not. And you can say, well, standards are high at Manchester United, to which the tempting answer is, How's that working out for you? Like, do you feel do you feel like this is do you feel like this is working? What the club's doing? Uh, the list of players who have been very good somewhere else, gone to United and gotten worse. It's getting pretty long, guys. That list, and some of that will be a failure to spot the right type of players for the environment, whether that's on or off the pitch. But when it keeps happening, at some point you got to wonder if the players are not fully to blame here. Is is all I'm saying. So whatever the off the pitch stuff. The key is still that his output on the field hasn't been good enough. Like, if he was scoring loads of goals and producing lots of assists, I'm sure United would have felt a much stronger duty of care. I've been at Old Trafford myself and seen Jaden Sancho start a game reasonably well, make a couple of mistakes, get the crowd on his back, and then you see his head kind of drops and he stops trying the difficult things. Like, clearly he wasn't having a good time there. Um, he, he produced quite a bit more than Anthony, at least, who cost even more. But, you know, it is what it is. It's tempting to wonder if his uh, career at United could have been different, if they hadn't like brought in Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, who kind of infringed on his spot in the team, if they hadn't brought in Anthony to, to, to play in his position, if you actually back the guy you'd spent 80 million on and who'd been really, really good in, in Germany before. Uh, but you can't really get away from the fact that he hasn't produced enough when he has been playing. And he seems to be someone who needs to be in a more supportive environment, and hopefully he will he will find that at Dortmund. I don't believe there's a clause to make that deal permanent, so maybe the best-case scenario here is that he kind of rediscovers his form a bit in the Bundesliga and then comes back, and then United very possibly have a new manager this summer, so, so we could maybe try that again. I don't know. Uh, another outgoing uh, to the Bundesliga was Eric Dyer. Dyer to Bayern Munich. 
I mean, why not? Like Eric Dyer seems like a lovely fella. Now he he was clearly a very good player for a while. Maybe never quite developed into the player uh, everyone kind of thought and hoped he would do. Uh, a lot of people anyway thought and hoped he would do. Uh, and it seemed to me that at the start of every season, for as long as I, you know, for a very long time, not as long as I can remember clearly, but for a very long time, if fans and journalists would look at their like preferred Tottenham lineup, Eric Dyer would usually not be in it. And whatever spot Dyer had on the team often kind of felt like that's the one you should probably upgrade, right? Uh, but all the various different managers Spurs had, they all ended up making him part of the team and a big part of the team. And I think that says something about him, that people would kind of come in, I'm not sure about this guy, but when they actually trained with him and worked with him and spent time with the team, they think, oh, yeah, actually, yeah, we, we do need that guy. And I think he's clearly someone who was very committed to his role as a player there and a very positive person around the club. I think you want to have people like that in your squad. But, of course, in the case of Anish Postacoglu, it does seem like mobility is a non-negotiable for him in terms of a player's quality. And Eric Dyer has never been the quickest. He doesn't seem super comfortable in this high line that Tottenham are playing. But he is still 30. And in other systems, you know, defenders can can play for far longer than that. Uh, so I would love to see him have a, a renaissance somewhere. That Bayern would be fabulous. I, listen, it is very tempting to make jokes here about, like, uh, I don't know, Harry Kane being the wingman of the year for getting his friend a job. All this other stuff we can do. But I've thought about this a bit recently. Like, I don't love how social media and certain parts of the media in general... And, and I'm guilty of this as well. I've certainly made mean jokes about Eric Dyer on this podcast. I almost definitely have done. Uh, we have a tendency to like elevate certain athletes who actually seem pretty toxic in some ways as as characters. But but if they perform and confirm to certain ideals, then then, then we elevate them. Whereas we have someone who seems to be a thoroughly decent person, or at least comes across as one. That doesn't seem to offer you any kind of protection from the mob if you commit the heinous crime of underperforming for a bit, right? Now, it's obviously, it's all a bit of fun. Football is a soap opera. We need heroes, we need villains, we need sort of minor side characters who are mostly there for comic relief. Like, we need that whole thing. But I just think the viciousness of it goes too far sometimes. And again, I've definitely been guilty of that myself. Uh, But this podcast does not have enough listeners, I have to tell you, for what I say to make any kind of a difference, but you still got to be the change you want to see in the world. So in the case of Eric Dyer going to Bayern Munich, I will forsake the obvious jokes uh, you can make about it and instead say that I think he seems like a decent guy. I hope he does really well. I wouldn't be surprised if he became a good manager at some point. Like, when he speaks about stuff, he comes across, uh, well, uh, more eloquent than a lot of his peers, you know? It seems like a solid guy. Um... If it makes sense, and it makes sense for Tottenham to let him go right now, I think. Uh, tactically, he isn't a very good fit for what Postacogli wants to do, just in terms of the tempo and all of that. But also, if you look at the dynamics of the dressing room, you know, for a few good years there at Tottenham, well, were they good years? Questionable. But for a few years, the sort of clear leadership group in the team, the four players who were like the most prominent characters were Harry Kane, Hugo Lloris, Eric Dyer, and Hoiberg. Now, I think... Lloris actually named those three as the other leaders in the squad. So this is kind of well-known. Now, of course, Harry Kane has left, Lloris has left, Dyer now has left, and Heiberg, you're expecting to leave either this month or in the summer. So I personally think Heiberg could still be very useful, but there is a kind of generational shift happening at that team, clearly. The team is being rebuilt, they're playing in a different way, new manager, a whole different energy. And I think there's a logic then to letting those leaders go so that new characters can kind of take their place in, 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 the, in the sort of internal dynamics of, of, of the dressing room. It has been a bit of an odd situation, 
where you've had three out of four from that sort of established leadership group still be at the club but not be important parts of the team or not being in the team at all. I don't think that's actually ideal. So I think moving them on makes a lot of sense. And listen, Bayern, Bayern were looking. Bayern didn't want to spend a lot of money. They wanted to strengthen at the back. They wanted another option at right back, and they wanted another option in in as a holding mid in holding midfield number six. Now Dyer can theoretically do all of those things, and you know he's a good character. He's not costing them that much, so you can see how it makes sense to them. I am a bit curious though. I mean, Bayern don't exactly sit back themselves, so if this sort of lack of mobility and the high line woes was a big problem for Ange, I'm very curious to see how that works out in the Bundesliga. You know, there's a very dynamic, open, sort of back-and-forth kind of league, the Bundesliga. If Eric Dyer isn't great on the turn and isn't great at the running, that's... Uh, hmm. It's obviously less so than when Bayern play. Obviously less so when Bayern play, because they have so much possession. But but I remember when Guardiola was in charge of Bayern, like, the big thing he had to change compared to Barcelona is he had to put even more emphasis on stopping counterattacks. Uh, a lot of tactical tweaks that he made at Bayern were, were about that. Because the Bundesliga teams, they can be chaotic. There's a lot of goofy defending there, as you know. But a lot of the teams, all the teams, have guys who can run. So the, the counterattacking stuff is, is important there. So mm, interesting times, I think, uh, to see what that uh, how that works out. Also, like... With clubs and production companies and everyone just desperate to generate content around football that actually works, I have to say, the adventures of Eric and Harry in Bavaria, like, I would watch it. Like, get the Lederhosen on them and have them sort of very sort of fish out of water, a culture and travel show where Harry Kane and Eric Dyer travel around the south of Germany just kind of experiencing local things. And, and, and no interpreters allowed. They have to they have to communicate with them on their own uh, to just make it better. I think that would be very, very good. Um, Eric Dyer speaks Portuguese, doesn't he? He's, he's a language guy. I'm sure he'll learn German pretty fast. Anyway, these uh, these games that we're having now... They're being played in a slightly odd way because, again, they've the Premier League have made the fixture list so so that teams can can get some time off. Uh, I think the teams who have to play replay in the FA Cup for them this is less good. You know, I think that 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 kind of messes up your your holiday time a, a little bit. So that's a that's a tough break for Everton, Palace, Nottingham Forest, Wolves, Brentford, Luton, and West Ham, who are all in action this midweek. I feel like I've said my piece on the whole cup thing. Uh, I want to like them. I'm not really feeling it. We'll see again. We'll try again with these replays and see if if the vibe improves. Um, betting wise, like there's a lot, there's not a lot I love this midweek with the lineup of games. I have to say, uh, but I am going to back Everton again, and I'm glad I have a chance to to talk about that on here. Everton, I still think they're looking okay. I am on the Sean Dyche hype train. I am in the caboose of the Sean Dyche hype train. Um, the game against Villa at the weekend did not go quite the way I thought it would. I thought we would get goals. We got disallowed goals in both ends. That didn't help me. Uh, we, we got Dominic Calvert-Lewin missing a one-on-one. It was just that kind of a day. And if you look at it, Everton have had three draws and two defeats in the last five. That obviously is not good. No wins in five always sounds bad. But again, I think I might have repeated myself here, but if you look at those three defeats, the game against Tottenham could have gone either way. Everton were very, very unlucky. They lost to City. Fine, that happens. Then they were real bad against Wolves. Like, no denying that. That was trash. Uh, lots of individual mistakes. People look tired. But the two draws since then have been the first leg of this cup game where they drew 0-0 to Palace and had Dominic Calvert-Lewin sent off. They created more clear chances than Palace in that game. I didn't think they were bad. 
And they weren't bad at all against Villa, I thought. Villa had more possession and shots, yeah, but I thought Everton had some really big chances there. And, you know, Palace for this game, Olise is out, last we heard. Jordan Ayew is at the AFCON. Now, I know Jordan Ayew is no one's idea of a brilliant forward, but, but he's actually the most fouled player in the Premier League this season. I bet you didn't know that. He's won more fouls than anyone else. And he really just helps Palace get up the field in terms of, like, winning fouls so they can reset and do a set piece. Him and Olise out, I think, hurts them. Uh, Eze still there, of course, yeah. Everton, no wins in six it is, actually. Not just five, no wins in six. But I've seen most of those games, and I stand by my view that they're still fine. Uh, except for that awful Wolves game. That was terrible. But I like Everton. I think they'll get it done here. Unlikely to be a goal fest, you feel. Uh, so so, so looking at this, Betson are offering uh, 1.96 on Everton to win, which I think is completely fine. But what you can also do, you can jump into the bet builder and just grab an Everton win and then add under 3.5 goals, uh, under 3.5 goals. Because that gets you a price of 2.62. And that I like, because neither of these teams are really producing a ton in attack at the moment. So this should go under 3.5, right? And I have faith in Daesh. Daesh finds a way. Uh, I think Everton can tilt this in their favor. That's what I'm going for this mid-week. Okay, that was good. That was a light breezy episode. Not too long. Like that. Let's uh, let's have more episodes. They don't have to be like an hour every time. I, I, I think that was good. Good to be back doing this more regularly is this the moment after months of irregular programming on my part that we get to a more steady stream of episodes i believe so i believe that's what's happening now Uh, excellent stuff guys thank you for listening see ya